You're listening to Once, episode 252, Only You and an Untold Story. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Jeremy Laughlin. I'm Aaron. And I'm Jacqueline. And we've got as much of the team together as we could tonight. Hunter is away taking care of baby L. Congratulations again on that. I already mentioned that before, but we're together to discuss these couple episodes that make up the season five finale of Once Upon a Time. So instead of doing our normal, really in-depth kind of scene-by-scene analysis and discussion of this and separating past from present and all of that stuff. Because this is a finale and because there's a lot of other stuff to talk about, we'll be talking about the main highlights and the, the main things that stand out from this, as well as some of our highlights, some of your highlights from the feedback we've received, as well as some theorization of what's coming in season six. And we do know that Once Upon a Time will receive a season six And most likely, it will start on September 25th, which is the last Sunday in September. That's my guess. It seems they've always started on the last Sunday of September. So that's when I'm guessing that will come out. And it keeps its time slot, 8 slash 7 central on Sunday nights, and maybe a bit of a different schedule uh, coming up for the new season. But we'll talk more about that later on. So let's just get into this with... The main discussions for this episode or these couple episodes, the season finale of season five, only you and untold story. I want to start by talking about this idea of, well, a couple ideas here of stealing magic and destroying magic. What do you guys think about, let's start with stealing the magic, about Rumpel's being able to tether magic to the object, the Olympian crystal. Well, I suppose magic has been moved around in the history of the show, in a sense, as in Storybrooke's magic. On the other hand, it's sort of been this year that we've gotten tether all the things to all the other things. It's totally (laughs) doable, but we've been kind of moved over the, uh, I feel like a shirt that's been washed on a washboard in a stream And that's sort of what's been done to the principles of magic in the show. So, I mean, that I didn't even quibble with that much because they introduced the fragment of the all-powerful what's-it-whatever. And so, sure, I guess that's possible as long as the thing goes away and we don't have that kind of power going forward, which it did. And by the thing, I mean the Olympian crystal. I do know what it's called. I agree with everything Jeremy just said about that specific point. (laughs) a little disclaimer you add to make sure that you aren't thought to agree with everything that i say from this point forward (laughs) something that does make sense about this is that remember storybrooke got its magic from rumple using the true love potion back in season one in the episode a land without magic that's cloud yeah the purple cloud brought magic back to storybrooke And so the magic that he's tethering to the Olympian crystal 
is the true love magic magic that came about from the the rarest potion and most powerful potion most powerful kind of magic ever maybe what doesn't yeah. make sense though is I'm, I'm struggling with some logic here on this <laughs> so he's that will be he's a thing. tethering storybrooks magic mm-hmm. the 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 places magic but not the people's magic well see thankfully we got that whole cycle of state the thing set out to do the thing redefine the thing limit the thing do it in a small small way we got that whole cycle in this one little story arc because first it's i'm going to destroy magic and then it's well it's storybrooks magic well destroying it doesn't actually do all the things we thought it was going to do and actually we can kind of just bring it back it's not really destroyed which actually that is a principle that's been stated and and well yeah that's true we'll get more into that bringing magic back in a little bit but the other part of this that doesn't make sense to me is so he has the magic from a region tethered to this a he region leaves. that's been destroyed and recreated at least once by yeah. my count uh, but then in new york city or outside of storybrook emma and regina are able to use their magic because of the olympian crystal carrying all of this magic with it and bringing magic then to our world but then when rumple has it he's able to essentially wrap magical aluminum foil around it and right. prevent oh, magic you in mean, our world. He quote did something to the crystal? Yeah. <laughs> and so then Emma and Regina don't have magic at right. that point. But he didn't take their magic in the first place. He took Storybrooke's magic. Unless oh, maybe here's the thing. <laughs> uh, this just came to me. Maybe this is the way to reconcile it. Is Maybe Storybrooke's magic is the catalyst that allows other magic to be used. By these characters. Yes. Because Dragon's always been able to use it. Yeah. I would agree with that because Rumpelstiltskin didn't have his magic when he was Mr. Gold stuck in original Storybrooke. But as soon as magic came to Storybrooke, he had his magic back. Exactly. And yet even that is somewhat foiled, no pun intended, by this very (laughs) episode because Henry because of not anything but his own conjecture, claims that they used the magic of the fountain when they lived in New York and maybe remembered everything, maybe didn't even remember anything. Well, I think we're supposed to take away that the real world, the world that isn't Storybrooke, has magic. It's just being able to harness it. So magic is kind of this universal force that people can harness if they know how. So... My actual logical problem is the fact that Rumple takes all of Storybrooke's magic, leaves Storybrooke, but Zelina can get the portal slash wand work. Right. And the effect essentially is that she's able to create the most elegant portal she's ever created with that wand, a doorway instead of a twister, which, by the way, when Regina used it, she also got a twister. So it didn't seem to be a choice at that point. Mm-hmm. The effect of... It, it was. It actually made me laugh how long a sentence she blurted out in the middle of all that turmoil about this must have something to do with magic being tethered to the crystal. <laughs> and, okay, <laughs> clearly you need to explain because it's so ridiculous that this elegant portal first sent everyone home safe and sound, then started like reaching out, reminiscent of Sydney Glass in the mirror, and pulling people 
into a different realm that they've never even thought of before. Why did that happen? Because <laughs> the writers wanted something else to happen. <laughs> the vocab word for the next season is something. Something. <laughs> I kind of agree. I get that if the crystal leaves Storybrooke, in theory, the entire world then has the capability to have the power that Storybrooke had, which means Storybrooke would still be in the world and thus would still have its magic. And I also understand the whole notion of magic already being in our world all the time. It's just that we don't believe that's very true to many fairy tales. And it's pretty clear by the characters that we have seen in this show that are actually from our world that magic has had its impact on this so-called land without magic many times. Alice, Dorothy, etc. Was Alice from our world? Well, <laughs> neither was Dorothy in the end. <laughs> oh, dang it. True. <laughs> Which you would think would all go to preserve the idea that this is a land without magic and that it was at least at one time really, really hard to create a portal, hence the whole curse. But now apparently it just appears that it's a land without magic. Well, I think that the worlds have been connected. There is no curse preventing the crossing of realms. And so once that connection has been made, there was never a much easier. preventing it. Well, it was something that Hook had said once about um, when, when a curse was broken. It was in season three when he got to Emma while she was in New York. He said something about once the curse was broken, he was able to travel between realms again. I, I could be remembering it incorrectly. Well, he has to outrun the dark curse at the end of well basically it's the beginning of 3b but we finally get the backstory toward the end of 3b yeah he has to outrun it i think what you're thinking about is when snow charming and regina go to meet glinda and regina talks about how the barrier between the worlds is gone episode 319 <laughs> i was thinking it was i'm pretty sure there was something that hook said too about travel between realms being possible again. But anyway, all that to say, what I think is it's kind of like a wound or uh, an injury of some sort. Once it's been broken, once it's been ripped open, once it's caught that disease, it's more susceptible to it. It's not like chicken pox. It's like something else that once you catch it, you're then more susceptible to catching it again. So now once that hole has been opened, travel between the realms is a bit more possible than it used to be. Especially to our realm. Perhaps. I'm curious why Henry felt that he needed to take magic out of Storybrooke to destroy it. Yes. Why couldn't he just shatter the crystal once he wrote it into his hand or use the pen? Because pen, the pen is apparently very, very strong and just, you know, right. And then the Olympian crystal was destroyed along with all of magic. That's what I originally thought he was going to do. Right. Uh, yeah, there's there's a ton there because here we just spent the entire rest of this story arc, well, not this story arc, but the one that came before technically, talking about how Henry could technically write them out of the underworld, but can't because he shouldn't because that's not what he's supposed to do because I would assume there are consequences and here he just does it. And as you're pointing out, not even in the smartest way possible. And then how did they get out of town, by the way? We already know buses do not come to Storybrooke. 
Well, we didn't see Regina's car in this episode, and we know that he knows how to drive it, so maybe that's how he got out of Storybrooke. Violet's totally playing him, by the way. Or they just walked <laughs> to a bus station. She goes along with that horrible description of a bus. The girl has seen cars, and apparently her father is from this world, so she's just playing along. It's either sweet or maniacal, and I don't know which yet. Well, in Operation Mixtape, by the way, you make uh, a mixtape for someone you like. <laughs> well, and I think he was using that because they had the whole music connection. And back in the day, that's what people used to do when they liked somebody. But I feel like he's a little bit beyond the Operation in, Insert Creative title here. He's like 15 or something. Like, get on with it. Just how, ask her out on a date. How old is he in the show? About 13. So. Well, they need to fix that. Yeah, because in my opinion, that would be quite a bit too young for them to just sort of stand back and watch him kiss in the street. Uh, I mean, I suppose everyone's going to have different opinions on that, but 13, really? And yeah, they could just, uh, at some point, at some point between villains, we could have six months pass. We don't even have to watch it, guys. Like, they could just have a life. And they could catch up with Henry's age. They could do all that stuff. They did really well with the New York thing because they got to advance a year. Yeah. Do it again because I don't even know when these people go to the bathroom. Well, they very well might because... Go to the bathroom? (laughs) Hyde (laughs) mentioned that he brought everyone. And I wonder if that means everyone from a land of untold stories. And maybe what could be cool in season six is we see Storybrooke has been transformed into this steampunk-like world where there are now thousands of these people from the land of untold stories. And Hyde is also in control. And then we have like the underground resistance movement. It could be cool to do (laughs) something like that. Yeah, I love how he was like, and I brought friends. And there was just this sort of pause. And it was almost (laughs) like he was about to say, Trust me, they're back there and they're really creepy. <laughs> We're not going to show them right now, of course. Do you think that's where all of our forgotten character? Do you think Forgotten Character Island is actually the land yeah. of untold stories? It is canonized Forgotten Character Island. They really did it. Actually, and I want royalty rights. I don't know because the people that we know that are on Forgotten Character Island had their stories told. They're actually worse. Untold stories have potential. Forgotten Character Island, they're just kind of, well, they have no use for them. Are they untold, though? And we'll get into this a little bit more because we have an entire section devoted to this new realm. Right. But I don't quite think it was named properly because I'm going to point out a lot of literary characters that we already know stories about. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Some really cool stuff, too, that we'll be sharing and discussing. I think that Henry's wanting to destroy magic and seeing that that's what Neil wanted as well. I think that's totally consistent. Be- Do you? Yes, because look back at season one, Desperate Souls and uh, The Stranger, when we saw Yun Bei and how much he wanted Rumpel to be rid of the Dark One power and that... Bay wanted to go to a land without magic, a land where Rumpel would not have his power. And I can't remember specifics along the way. I've tried to remember some of them, but it seemed like there were plenty of statements along the way of Neil referring to magic as this horrible thing that he wished never exists, never touched his family. When would this have been his plan, though? 
because as far as he knew, he made it to a land without magic. And yeah, Storybrooke showed up, but it didn't have magic until the curse was broken. I suppose he was no, he knew some things because that was really the first thing we saw of Neil was getting word that the curse had been broken. So maybe he was preparing, I guess. But as far as he knew, there was no magic in this world. So I don't know why that would have been something he was trying to do. Yeah, I have no doubt that he has some pretty strong stances on dark magic. I mean, look at the way it affected his father and Neil's entire life. I mean, how long was he stranded on Neverland because of magic, you know? But this whole he had a secret mission that no one ever knew about except for two seasons after he died because he suddenly told Henry, apparently, and also kept journals that no one's ever known about or discussed or ever been brought up, ever. It's convenient. I think it would have made more sense if it had been revealed that somehow Henry knew about this because of Tamara. Well, maybe that's the connection here at the library because... Remember, they said that Neil was going to the library to meet someone. Who? Probably Tamara. I wish it was the dragon. Yeah. (laughs) There's been some statements, like, I I wondered in my notes, like, when did Neil have the time to share this plan with Henry? But I do remember that they did spend some time together. But then there, there was a statement in Manhattan, which is probably one of my favorite episodes. It's a statement from probably one of my favorite scenes where... Neil says, I spent a lifetime running from that man. I'm not going to let him catch me. So it seems to me like even though he was in a land without magic, like he was still living a life of disguise. If he thought that he was safe from Rumpelstiltskin finding him, he wouldn't have been living such a such a down low, low key secret life. Right. So I do wonder if, and I don't know that we're going to find this out because I don't know that it's important, but I wonder if. Rumpelstiltskin had made some type of contact with him through some of the magic that does exist in our world, or if Neil did find out that magic did exist in our world. Even through August, that would have been possible. Yeah, and I suppose a magical curse being broken indicates some sort of activity, even though Rumpel hadn't fully brought magic back yet to his knowledge. And did August not start feeling wooden again (laughs) before he made it back to Storybrooke? Right. He did. Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't that because Emma stayed in Storybrooke? Yeah, it's because she decided to stay. But it was still an effect of magic that was felt outside of Storybrooke's boundaries. There was magic wearing away. That's true. Right. Yeah, because August exists as a human because of magic. I mean, Neil definitely knows that there is magic in one corner of the universe that he's living in. Because he knows about Storybrooke, and he knows that Emma is the savior who's going to break the curse. I Like I said, I'm not denying that he probably had some bad feelings about magic. It's more this whole sudden secret mission exposed two years after he died. Well, here's a funny thing. I guess I sealed season two in my head really, really well, because only just now during this conversation did I even remember who tomorrow was to Neil. <laughs> <laughs> and my mind half exploded. But I, wait, I think what? I just realized why it couldn't be tomorrow meeting Neil in the library. It wouldn't have to be so secretive for one thing. And in Selfless, Brave and True, Neil shows Tamara Henry's book and explains to her that he's Balefire, that he's in this book, that he comes from this other realm. And she doesn't, she pretends not to believe him. 
until she sees August being transformed back into a boy in front of her very eyes at the very end of the episode. So it's not like they were meeting in secret to destroy magic. Right. Oh, that's true. Because she was playing the part of, of somebody who didn't believe. Yes. Then maybe it could have been Greg. Greg and Tamara were aligned. They both believed magic was unholy and needed to be destroyed. Now, how much of that Tamara lets on in her relationship with Neil, I think you have a good point there that it wouldn't make sense for it to be her, but maybe it was Greg or someone else from the home office. Well, it'd have to be someone else because he would have recognized Greg. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Greg Mandel was walking around Storybrooke eating sandwiches at Granny's and, you know, taking pictures in the woods. To me, it all still feels like the rest of season two mixed, chopped up and put into modern context because we still would have had their elements here. I mean, even the taser, like I said, in our initial reaction, we kind of got a taser again. We got the uh, the concept of destroying magic. I think Henry would have ended up very involved in it, possibly for the same reasons. It just, it seems like little elements of how season two was supposed to go got into this. Well, there was an interview about a week before this episode aired where Adam and Eddie were talking about what they mean by an untold story. And they talked about how it was something that they had to hit pause on a while back ago, but they were bringing back. So, and we've been speculating ever since we learned that Jekyll and Hyde were coming, that we were going to have this whole science versus magic storyline and kind of revisit the idea of the home office. And I don't know that we're going to see anything to do with the home office again, even though they did come up in this episode, but Yeah, it seems like they're taking some stuff from season two and moving it to season six because, of course, they got Neverland. So they kind of quickly got rid of all that stuff so they could do other things. Or even just they kind of wrapped it up in these two hours. Because I even I expected in season two to see magic outside of Storybrooke and to see perhaps a battle with Rumpelstiltskin. Although maybe, you know, I don't know that I expected it to just be lightning over a hotel room, but I thought that maybe... It was going, the battle was going to go worldwide and that sort of thing. I mean, it was, it was fun to see all those things happening. Although I couldn't figure out why people weren't looking up at the purple (laughs) storm over the hotel. That, I mean, I guess you see everything in New York. Maybe it was like one of those things like the invisible creature in Harry Potter that only people who have like been touched by death can see it. Only people who like knew about magic could see the purple cloud. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. that would so like sense. any little kid that was under the age that kids stop believing in magic and then all of the adults that actually know. So I bet at that wishing well, if everyone had looked up, they would have seen that purple cloud. <laughs> <laughs> that was I thought that wishing well was a really cute idea. Uh, the penny was ginormous. I, I've seen an American penny before. It doesn't look like that. Right. <laughs> we don't have pennies anymore in Canada, but uh, they they were the same size as yours, as your pennies. <laughs> so that was more like a quarter. Nobody had American pennies. <laughs> well, I'm kind of wondering why the pennies didn't render them unconscious. I mean, they're basically falling from the sky. That's actually quite dangerous. It's why, why they tell you not to throw pennies off, you know, like the Empire State Building. True. But why were the pennies falling from the sky and then the portal opened in the ground? 
Because it opened in the water. Maybe that's the magical water that runs beneath all the realms. <gasps> Whoa. And it's in a fountain in New York. That's actually consistent. Yeah, it does make sense then. And speaking of water, the grail was the source of all magic, according to what Henry said. And that's kind of close to what we see, except we still don't know about the fairies and their origin story. But at least in the Enchanted Forest, it seems that Merlin and the Grail were the source of all of the magic then. And this Grail, the Dark Grail, as they called it, looks exactly like that original Grail, except this one's black. I compared the two screenshots. We'll have the screenshots in the show notes as well at oncepodcast.com slash 252 so you can see them and compare them together. Thing we had Camelot, girl. Well, you know they just spray painted that old <laughs> prop. I mean, <laughs> but so there's two grails. I mean, putting aside the fact that the Holy Grail is kind of supposed to be this very unique icon that doesn't have a twin. Um, <laughs> so who created the second grail and why is it dark because the original grail you know got transformed into excalibur which then got broken to the dagger so it's got this kind of light and dark magic theme going on but apparently this dark twin grail is fully bad is that how we should read it should we read the fact that it can end magic as a bad thing yes i don't think that it can like i know that the rules of magic have been really exploited in this episode or confused or whatever the correct word is but i don't think magic can be destroyed i don't think darkness can be destroyed i have many instances of writing this in my notes and i'm sure we're going to talk about them more when we talk about the whole uh jekyll and hyde and the regina and evil queen thing but I really like what was said at the end when he said darkness is not as easy to snuff out as you might believe. And I originally tweeted that differently. And I was like, darkness is not as easy to snuff out as the light because I'm thinking of like when you turn out a light or blow out a candle, like it's actually something that like when we turn on a light, that's something we're doing. That's like a human creation to combat darkness. But there's not the same... I'm actually wrong because it. I thought of the quote from Once Upon a Time in Wonderland where the evil queen says, there's a darkness everywhere when the sun goes down, which is true. And so it's constantly a battle between light and darkness in the world. Like that's dawn and dusk. And that's, even if you just look at it strictly from a light and dark perspective, not a good and evil perspective, it's, it's always going to, both are always going to exist. And I think that that they almost like rectified the situation of destroying the evil queen at the end when they found out she wasn't really destroyed. And that goes with the rules of magic because mm-hmm. magic can't be destroyed. Can it can just form. change forms. Yeah. So what even is the point of that grail? <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> I mean, because we have to assume that something created both of these. I mean, when Merlin finds the original grail, he kind of ascribes it to this god or god's so we've met now officially two gods. Neither one of them are connected to the Holy Grail, by the way. So I don't know. We go back to this whole, should they keep it religiously neutral? But there are these two grails. One seems to have created magic. One seems to not destroy it entirely, but at least destroy or at least suck it up like the hat did in a negative way. Exactly like the hat, by the way. So where do these two grails come from? What's the purpose of them? 
who created them? Why is one in Camelot and why is one in a library in New York City? Why is anything in that library in New York City, that li- that room that apparently nobody ever goes to that looks suspiciously like the hidden wing of the mansion in Storybrooke? <laughs> and the thing is, they couldn't have been created without magic. So they couldn't have been the start of magic because magic would have had to been used to create them unless we are going to get into like a science versus magic argument in the next season. Well, there is uh, in even in theology, this debate that could be entered into is, well, what's the origin of that? Like, well, you can get that way with either side, either with the secular side or the religious side. You can say, what's the origin of that? Where did that come from? Who made that? Who made that? Who made that? Who made that? And uh, at least on the uh, Christian theological side, the ultimate answer is, well, God is infinite, so he didn't have to be created. And there are different ideas on the secular side. And I think that they almost kind of had to give us some form of deities in the show, which they did. Now, they're not only acknowledged the existence of deities, but we got to meet a couple of them. And that's the source of the magic that we have in Once Upon a Time. And so those deities, maybe since they're taking a very, very universal approach to a lot of things and they're trying to incorporate a lot of ideas, maybe they're also kind of incorporating the the yin-yang idea, the balance here of the light and dark and one can't exist without the other. So you create an item that uh, brings magic to the world. You are also creating an item that removes magic from the world. And it's a lot of um, Eastern mysticism in that idea that the balance, the yin, the yang, and that kind of thing. So maybe that's what happened when, let's go with what it seems they're saying, is when the gods created the grail, is they created both. I don't know that I like this idea of that the gods created magic. I think the hat was too expensive. <laughs> and Henry wouldn't have known how to wield it. <laughs> But he suddenly knew how to wield the grail. All he had to do was point and shoot. The hat had to be opened from the box, and Henry couldn't do that, so grail. And in five seconds, he sucked up all the magic, apparently everywhere, unless you believe really hard. That's all it took. Yep, believing brought it back. And guys, easiest portal ever, wish magic. A bunch of... New Yorkers were able to open a freaking portal to another realm. If only Balefire had known that. And the cost is less than the tolls in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah, Balefire totally could have maybe gotten people to believe and he could have brought his father there after all. Rumpel could have had another chance. See, by the time Neil was in New York City, though... He was completely anti-magic. He wanted to get away from Rumpel. I mean, Kid Balefire, when he arrived. Yeah, because he was in London for a while. Oh, that's true. But wasn't he in fictional London? Why was he in fictional London? Oh, no. He was not. He was in real London. (laughs) So then that does mean, that goes back to what I said at first, that this world has been tainted by magic. Because if he was in London and ended up in Neverland, that means somehow magic came to our world and got him, Mm -hmm. right? The shadow. Which is magic, which means... It's always kind of been around. Right. It's this universal force that people can learn to harness. And it's been around in small little pockets here and there. And that was referenced somewhere else. I can't remember if it was 
with the dragon or August or uh, Jefferson, maybe even, but somewhere in the series, they did make reference to it exists in small pockets. Maybe it was even Greg and Tamara. I think it was in this episode. The dragon said that something similar anyway. I don't remember August saying that. I just remember him talking about Emma believing. One of the things they referred to August saying was there's magic everywhere if you're willing to see it. I thought it was very fitting that August was the one to say this because it reminded me a lot of a quotation from August Rush, which is the music is all around us. All you have to do is listen. That's what I was I was writing in our chat earlier. I was like, I'm trying to think of this line that this quote is reminding me of and just it was about just seeing the magic that's all around us all the time maybe it was actually that because i love that movie but it was so quick that henry wanted to bring magic back after he was just so bent on destroying magic now he realizes oh i need magic for bringing back the rest of my family and now i'm a big fan of magic in fact let's get everyone else to be a big fan of magic (laughs) (laughs) and really he doesn't he felt he needed magic to do that, but he didn't take magic from all the worlds. He only took it from his. So they could have found their way back without him, perhaps. Yeah. If we were extending into the next season. I have to say, though, this scene at the fountain with Henry and the New Yorkers is my favorite moment of the episode. And the more I think about it, it might be my favorite of the entire season. And it's so cheesy. It's like the cheesiest scene ever, but it's so good. Yeah. I mean, Um, these two hours were fun to watch. It's mm -hmm. just the consistency with the rest of the show that leaves some something to be desired. I felt like this was Henry fulfilling his role as the truest believer, which I like better than his role as the author, or as I like to say, the scribe. Hmm. He was the author in this story, and I feel that there should be some consequences to that beyond what there were. There might be. There might be. He is a better truest believer than he is the author i mean i don't know that anybody else can get up there and really sell the power of wish and it becomes magic more Mm -hmm. than henry and i was really reminded of probably the most iconic disney song there is when you wish upon a star you know it makes no difference who you are anything your heart desires can come to you and to me it's one of the best messages out there in the disney universe And I never get sentimental about Once Upon a Time anymore, but this actually really got me, like, pretty teary-eyed. And I thought it was just such a great little scene, because he's encouraging everyone out there who's jaded and bitter and cynical, like me, to to believe in magic again, which, you know, was just such a big part of why I started watching this show five years ago. And that was Henry's original role, was to get Emma to believe. Yeah. So he's good at that. That scene reminded me of him begging Emma not to leave Storybrooke in season one. And it reminded me of him begging Regina not to destroy the well in season two. And those are, you know, those are the scenes I remember of Henry from the whole series. Those two, like when she's in the car and he's saying, like, your family needs you. And she decides to stay. And when he's saying to Regina, if you like want me to have faith in you, you need to have faith in me and like believe that my family's going to come back. So I do like that side of Henry, even though it was totally a cheesy scene, like you said. <laughs> Did anyone else think of the end of Elf? I haven't seen Elf. <laughs> it's another one that I have to watch for you guys. 
You're going to have to explain that. Bunch of people, I think in New York, standing around having to believe oh, yeah. in Santa in that case so that his sleigh would fly. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> if we can spoil Lost, I think we can spoil Elf. <laughs> I didn't say it worked. Irvin sent in this feedback uh, saying... I did not find this finale to be the strongest that the show has ever put out. It was not very coherent to me as a casual viewer, and it dragged considerably in many spots. More than anything, I was disappointed that the writers decided to go with the, quote, destroy all magic, unquote, plot point. I really think that the destroy all magic plot point might have been something best saved for the final season of the show. It was ultimately wasted here. To me, the writers packed all of the drama of past season finales with none of the excitement or tension in these two hours. In one word, the finale was simply anticlimactic. I get his point. There were parts of this, these, this two-part finale, that did feel a bit incoherent. But I think there were other parts where I thought, oh, this is really cool. This is, I like the way they're going with this. I really like what they're setting up. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit of the finish of the episode, I didn't quite like that much. But. but see, think about how it was two years ago when they first did, I think it was two years ago, when they first did a two-hour finale. And we got through that whole story arc. And we were like, wow, if they got to this point already before the finale, what do they have in store for the two-hour finale? And then it was just a two-hour story about Hook and Emma in the past messing things up. We were just sort of like, huh, okay, that wasn't really connected to our story arc. So we've come to expect the two-hour finales to not be connected to the story we watched the rest of the (laughs) several weeks before. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a great way to do it. I think of the two hour finales that they've done, this was my favorite. I think too, that he might be not like he's saying it's anticlimactic, but maybe that was the point. Like I said earlier, maybe the point of this was that magic can't be destroyed and that darkness can't be destroyed. Because I do think that by what they revealed at the end, that we're really going to be seeing the evil queen, not Regina as the evil queen, but the evil queen herself as the big bad in the next season, or at least part of it. But I do also think that that could have been prevented if Regina had just come to terms with the fact that she has to learn to live with her own darkness because that's always going to be a part of who she is. Mm -hmm. And by trying to separate herself from that, she's actually going to create something even worse, which is this like untethered darkness since we (laughs) like to tether things. Right. So her darkness was tethered to her own soul and she was winning, but now she's separated it. And now it's, it's like, you have to learn to live with that. If you made that choice, you learn to live with it and then you can move on and you can be redeemed from it. But trying to pretend it didn't exist, isn't going to work. And Regina versus the evil queen is a big point in this episode. And it is a bit of darkness versus light, not only in Regina, but by extension, all of us or all of the characters, certainly also Jekyll and Hyde. But for Regina specifically, boy, this episode, her character development yeah. was mm-hmm. amazing. Particularly first hour. Yeah. Yeah. That whole conversation that happened in Neil's apartment. Yeah. That was incredible. Yeah. Remember, this is the woman 
who cast the dark curse to get revenge on a 10 year old who couldn't keep a secret (laughs) and like how elaborate Regina was and how angry she was. And even in season two, when she had magic, how much she just wanted to destroy people who would get between her and Henry and to look at where we are today. And even just to realize the emotion that's behind when she looks at Emma Mm -hmm. and says, and my friends to see her character development, her path of redemption it's been great for her character to really see and very realistic too to see the constant struggle anyone who has overcome something horrible in their life uh, an addiction a struggle anything like that they always have that struggle but the maturity comes in those daily victories and those daily choices to not do what necessarily feels the best, but what you know is right, as well as what is serving those around you, the people you love. I think Regina is probably their best story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's never been my favorite character. Even from the beginning, I was always more drawn to Rumple. But looking at where she started and where she is now, hers is one of the stories that really does feel completely organic does feel like we have honestly watched her have a redemption. I, you know, she's done such an amazing job and she is really the show's best story. Yeah. As much as I hate to say it, Rumpel's story should have ended when he killed Pan the first time. That would have made it a good story and moving beyond it would have been fine or better there might have been some things that have happened since then that would have been like well why didn't rumple just do that instead of casting this curse or getting regina to cast the curse but at least that loop or that arc from the beginning of the show to then would have been closed and instead it's kind of to me dragging rumple along with it and kind of damaging him so this story this conversation just this monologue kind of I think if you were to go back and listen to some of the things we've said about Regina as she's gone on and the things that we would want to see in a true redemption of her, this kind of shows that it's all there, that it's genuine and true. And she is still, she's way more complex than maybe we feared. And it explains so much of her behavior. And just for clarification, we're not saying we're rumple haters or hook haters or any character <laughs> haters or anything like that. There are certain things we like and dislike about each character. We're story lovers. Story yeah, exactly. It's quality of story. And this was quality. Yeah. Interestingly, especially if you separate the two hours, I loved it here. And I would have loved it more if it hadn't been set up for something that I find truly bizarre, which is evil queen running around on her own separate from Regina. (laughs) But it didn't feel so much like set up as these things usually do. And then in the second hours when she kind of restated it quickly and it came out funny and it sounded more mechanical and more like, oh, we're setting up for a a thing we're going to do. And then, you know, the whole thing and Emma and Snow and, hey, yeah, let's just rip the queen out of you and kill her. We don't kill anyone, but kill her. Very strange. Also, in and of itself, I suppose they saw it as destroying darkness. Cool. That's fine. But interestingly, I had assumed that Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz had written the entire finale 
And I started thinking as we watched, did our rewatch and we were going through the second hour, I realized these episodes seem to have been written by different people. So I looked and it was the opposite of what I thought. David H. Goodman and Andrew Chambliss actually wrote the first hour that I liked better. Wow. And Kitsis and Horowitz wrote the second. Oh, They were both good, but I thought it was the opposite just based on probably primarily even just that conversation with Regina. It well, was so good. You know, and on that point, great job on Andrew Chambliss and David H. Goodman's part in that they did such a fantastic episode. They have really improved with their writing. And I know sometimes we critique and criticize the writing of certain episodes, and we know a lot of the fans do, and we and try to represent the general fandom for the most part and try to be friendly in doing so. But I loved the writing in Only You. So fantastic job, guys. You've Indeed. really gotten great at writing the episodes. And they've been with the show a long time. Which I think, especially as the show ages, that's important. They've been with the characters a long time. Speaking of the characters, <laughs> <laughs> do, do we all think that the characters made it back safely to the Enchanted Forest? The ones who were going there? Which I don't even know how they pick who went and who stayed, and or were they going back to Camelot? It's very confusing. Well, now that could be an interesting thing if somehow they were... Also captured, but there was no indication that they were. Right. David said that's everyone, which makes me think it is supposed to be everyone from Storybrooke, which then does make room. I think only the visitors, the people, the strays that they'd picked up over the last couple of years. Oh, no, that could be too. I don't see why they'd empty the town. Merida, we saw Little John, we saw some of the other Merry Men. Yeah, we saw Roland. Yeah. It's Merida, it's the Merry Men and Roland, and there was someone on set who was dressed to be a body double for Guinevere. <laughs> really? I didn't even notice that. Before we step through that portal and get to discussing that, I want to come back to the Evil Queen versus Regina stuff. For one thing here, a nice little tidbit. When they were on that rooftop and split Regina... That's the same rooftop where Emma and Walsh had their times together. Their times together, where they loved, where they murdered or attempted to murder. Where, <laughs> where they turned into monkeys. Where they shared their away. secrets, including, hey, I'm a flying monkey and I'm here to kill you. <laughs> yep, those times. By the way, who's paying the rent on that apartment? That is just like the Storybrooke satellite. Your questions are pointless. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> What did you think of this whole idea of being able to split Regina's evil queen from Regina? I thought it was creepy as heck to watch. That was actually great. They looked all like they were sort of their, their cells were straining. And then evil queen turns and looks like you. Why am I seeing you from the outside? And then she like grabs her jacket before she's even fully stepped out. It was weird and creepy. and I liked it. But that was the last part of that that I actually liked. I think a really interesting idea, and I think this is probably where we're going to be going for season six. Apart from the really great conversation that Regina and Emma had in Neil's apartment, there was also a really great conversation between Rumpel and Regina in Chinatown that I think sets up the big themes of season six, which is this idea of are evil and good together do they work you know, together? You can't actually separate them out. Or 
Is it something like Regina's trying to do where you can actually remove all the evil that's within you, all the darkness, whatever, and destroy it? So one of my other favorite shows right now is Penny Dreadful. And they have their own Jekyll and Hyde this season. And they had basically the exact same conversation on Sunday as Once Upon a Time. And what they talked about is this idea of evil and good braided be. Like, they are braided together. You cannot separate them out. You know, you can't remove one from the other. And then Dr. Jekyll's perspective is, no, you can with the right combination of science. And I think that's kind of where we're going in season six. And I I hope that they come back to the idea that evil and good are entwined. I actually think Rumpel's right in this conversation he had with Regina. Mm. Well, I've made no secret that I think he's dead wrong. I kind of think there are some hints that it's not, I don't think it's going to be that simple. I don't think that just pull the darkness out and destroy it is the right answer either. Uh, Just like when she, when Regina couldn't, felt that she couldn't handle her sadness and she took out her heart. I don't think she can do that now. I think that probably where we're headed with her and with Jekyll and Hyde is that they have to be somehow reintegrated and perhaps in a more healthy way or something like that. I don't know. But um, Rumpel said that he failed to contain the darkness because he likes it. And that's true. You're not going to overcome something that you don't want to overcome. Mm-hmm. That is true. Also, and perhaps a bigger hint of where they may, might be thinking, Dragon said, he's not going to help Rumpel. He doesn't help people whose souls are so dark. But Regina is fighting a noble battle within herself. And so Regina, he would help. That's true. I kind of have to wonder with this whole good and evil, light and dark thing. Does the evil queen, though, have qualities that Regina needs? Like, how is Regina going to act now in season six that she's had the evil queen removed? Because I think the evil queen's problem is that it's these negative characteristics in their extreme. But when you kind of boil down what the evil queen is, it's self-preservation. It's making sure that Regina is strong enough to not have anyone bully her or push her around because Cora was such a horrible mother to her. But it's also passion. It's feeling something, believing in something so strongly that, you know, you're willing to fight for it. And what she believed in was horrible. But you kind of can't remove that level of passion from somebody and not have them, to quote Alice, lose their muchness. <laughs> I Yeah, I agree. It's It's all, and that's where, again, this whole concept comes out of nowhere and doesn't mean anything. It's like, you, what does that even mean? It's all her. And that's what I didn't like about the second hour is that she only once stopped referring to evil queen in the third person and said what I did. And she had to correct herself to even get there, which doesn't make any sense. She is or was the evil queen. Those are the things that she did. And she knew all this in the first hour. It was in the second hour that suddenly she seemed to think more like this is something separate that I can get out. I mean, she talked about it a little bit third person-y in the first hour, but yeah, it is it is kind of a, a concept that isn't going to be well-defined because she made, as she said so well, she took her circumstances and made wrong choices. She had the choice whether to forgive Snow White or not, and everything after that was her choice. But yeah, there are things about her that used for good can still be good. There are strengths I don't know that they belong to some separate entity known as the evil queen. They're just Regina. And she let 
those parts of her become something that she used for evil, but she's also already used them for good. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether she seems to be altered by having a part of her missing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that those parts are used for evil. I like what Gareth Gray wrote saying, I really appreciated Regina's response to the whole Robin and Hook situation. It did make her a richer character exploring her inner darkness and coming to terms with it, deciding to be good even when it means she suffers. How Mm. selfless. I appreciated Snow stepping up to support her. I did not like any time other characters made assumptions about her going evil again. I did not like them splitting Regina. I mean, if you want to see evil Regina again, then this is the best way possible, as it does not ruin all the character development they have been doing for years. I appreciate that. The thing I don't get is what they were trying to accomplish. Does the split (laughs) Regina not remember all the evil things she did? If she does remember, then wouldn't she still feel guilty? If the evil part just contains the evil impulses, what does that mean? Does that mean that the non-evil Regina is incapable of doing anything evil? Has she lost her personality and her free will? I think that ripping out part of who you are would totally change your personality and cause your life to start unraveling. Regina has learned from her mistakes. Will splitting her mean she has forgotten everything she learned? I hope, like someone else suggested, I think Daniel, that the ultimate resolution of this story will be that the two Reginas will come back together to form a whole because they need one another. See Star Trek Voyager faces for comparison. (laughs) I actually thought of that when uh, when we were doing our initial reactions. I think the the statement she made at Granny's was perfect. I'm used to suffering and I'm used to others getting their way. And none of our feelings matter right now. She was already putting it aside for the good of everybody around her. And that's where she should be after everything that's happened to her. So it was a little irritating to have some of the stuff with Emma saying, yeah, I think you should sit this one out. <laughs> And speaking of Emma, Jessica Olson said, I really like the scenes between Emma and Regina and also with Snow and Regina, the few there were. It's nice to see the character development, and I love how much Regina opened up to Emma and how much Emma was trying to support her after the initial brief hesitation. I really was glad we didn't have much conversation about fear of Regina turning evil again because she's come too far for that to be okay with me. I do like the possibilities we have with the evil queen being separate from Regina now, though, because it's a way to keep Regina's growth intact while allowing the possibility of a showdown between Emma and the evil queen. I would really like to see that now that Emma seems to have a firm grasp on her powers. I don't know, actually, about that last little bit, because I don't know if it's going to come down to Emma versus the evil queen. I mean, in a way, that was season one. Yeah, and that's not really a battle Emma needs to face. I I know, yeah, yeah, it would be cool to see an Emma versus evil queen battle. Just like it sounds like a great idea to see Batman versus Superman (laughs) or a tornado for sharks. That doesn't mean it's actually a good idea, though. (laughs) My goodness. I don't know what you're talking about. Sharknado is a masterpiece. (laughs) I think if we're going to see a big battle, it's going to be Regina versus the evil queen. And it's going to end, hopefully, like like some of the other feedback said, with them having to realize they need to come come back together. I just hope it happens quickly, because honestly, 
maybe they could pull some interesting things out of it, but I don't feel super compelled by wanting to see what Regina's relationship with her dark side is. I liked hearing her talk about it as a person, like just having a slow down moment and talk about it. But, but now I think they just were like, guys, we cannot do any more evil queen flashbacks, but people love her. Mm -hmm. Let's find a way to have her in the season. (laughs) Yeah. Look at what happened during the, the curse of shattered sight when Regina went all evil queen and how much that fun that was, was in Storybrooke. <laughs> the and, banter between her and Snow White was oh, yeah. awesome. <laughs> I was 10. <laughs> and we're going to see a lot more of that, I'm guessing, because Evil Queen will probably be going back to Storybrooke since everything happens in Storybrooke or New York. And, and here's, I think, an explanation for why pulling the heart out and crushing it didn't work. Doesn't seem like it'd be a real heart. Exactly. Right. Otherwise, it would have killed Regina. Yeah. But then again, does that mean either Jekyll or Hyde can't be killed? That's also possible. Probably. Well, and, they have to be integrated and then killed. Yeah. And with Do the we want Evil that? Queen, <laughs> I think the reason... Well, something was probably taken out of her in some sense with that heart. Uh, something. And so I think that jumping to the end of the episode, when the evil queen goes to see the dragon and pulls out his heart, we don't see her crush the heart. So we don't know that the dragon is killed. But I think she wants the heart for herself because maybe she doesn't have much power without a heart. It's the only way she can get out of the underworld. I mean, get into Storybrooke. I mean, maybe she's going back to the Enchanted Forest, too. Well, if it's the Evil Queen, then she's got one agenda. And the Evil Queen always has one agenda, and it's getting Snow White. So she's (laughs) going to go to Storybrooke to try and finish what she's been trying to do for 29 years. Hmm. Plus. (laughs) (laughs) Ten. And I think the setup for season six is what... Evil Queen said, she may have won the fight, but this is a war and it's just begun. Is it the final battle? Is it the final battle? The final yeah. battle. Is it the final battle? <laughs> uh, you should have said it in Rumpelstiltskin's voice. <laughs> I, I feel like, though, Storybrooke is being occupied right now. Doesn't that make fakey carbon copy Evil Queen a little irrelevant somehow? Well, I think this kind of depends on where they're going with Hyde. Maybe and she'll meet Hyde and they'll be like, hey, we're both the skin of evil. Yeah. Um, you want to go out on a date? Want to make chaos with me? <laughs> People are already shipping them. <laughs> oh, are you for real? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they started shipping them the moment we had set photos of Regina and Hyde talking in Storybrooke. What, what's <laughs> the name of that ship? Ride. R-Y-D-E. Really? At, oh. That's what it is at the moment. We're still tossing around some ideas, but I'm seeing ride most often. Who really wants to take a ride on that ship? <laughs> <laughs> I think that this whole war, final battle, whatever it's going to be, and I really do want to see a final battle, but whatever is going on, I think that this whole Evil Queen versus Regina thing is a lot more of a plot point for season six, because look at what the dragon said to Regina. He said, it's imperative you win 
for all of us. Yeah, I caught that. So there's something. I don't know if he can see the future, if he's just very smart, but there's something big with this that overshadows everyone. Maybe. Or it's just one of those lines meant to infuse some tension. He seems, though, like like that wise, cryptic grandfather guy that most Disney movies have or grandfather, grandmother woman, you know, that most Disney movies have that speaks in riddles but knows more than they seem to be sharing. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember a certain line that was very similar to that in Lost that nobody could ever really discern that it meant anything. And was he talking about Regina succeeding to get everybody back from the untold stories realm or was he meaning on a greater scheme of things because basically him helping her get everybody back actually orchestrated her ability to separate herself from herself right which interestingly led to his heart being pulled out i guess we're gonna have to wait until season six how did the ashen evil queen know to float through the air right to <laughs> right to where dragon guy was maybe magic attracts magic maybe but magic is everywhere in the land without magic well and it could be that when regina pulled out this quote heart unquote from evil queen that that was evil queen's moment that she realized this is my escape this is my opportunity that I'll make her think I'm dead. I want to go back and talk to that dragon guy because I need a, an actual heart. They did wait a little long considering how adamant they were that she do it quickly before she got her magic, which I don't even know why a split entity has magic. I thought one of them would not have any magic. Yeah, same. Because it's the evil queen who learned magic. Or at least the evil queen who really took to magic. We saw Regina in the woods trying to learn magic and she had a few simple spells, but it's like Rumpel said, his best student was the evil queen. And by the way, why did Dr. Jekyll know that she wouldn't have her magic for a few moments since the only person he ever split was himself and he has no magic? Well, I think he was just meaning that there's a moment of disorientation, I think is what Mm. he said. And so in that moment of disorientation, she wouldn't be able to use her magic because she would be confused in disorientation evil queen could have just been shooting fireballs left and right they don't know true that's dangerous that's why emma stayed and chained her up and forced her hands to her side so she couldn't do anything yeah. crazy so is she a cheap copier or are they both fully regina because if they're both fully regina they were gonna kill a regina which they won't even kill in self-defense without years of guilt what was that Well, I don't think they can be fully Regina because fully Regina is, you know, stable princess plus evil queen. I agree. So, (laughs) yeah. Stable meaning in more ways than one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what keeps our podcast stable? (laughs) Our wonderful sponsors. You really do keep us stable. Thank you very much for this episode. 
to David Newland, Lisa Slack, and DJ Firewolf. We could not do this podcast without you. We also have 31 heroes on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you very much, especially those ongoing monthly contributions, which is all we get now because of the way we've set it up. Even if it's a dollar per month, that really helps. And during this upcoming hiatus, when we won't be putting out as many podcast episodes, we still have expenses for running the server, for purchasing things to be able to keep the podcast going, for reviewing episodes, for trying to get other things, doing certain equipment upgrades and certain other stuff that allow us to bring the podcast to you. So thank you very much for being our stable boy or being our stable girl and keeping the podcast going. If you would like to be a hero to the podcast as well, and then you get exclusive access to fun things like our bloopers and other cool stuff, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. Thank you very much for your support. Any amount helps to make a, a dollar per month contribution or $10 a month or $15, $50, $100, whatever the podcast is worth to you and the entertainment we provide. Please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero to become a hero and a stable hero at that for the podcast. And thank you for your support. Coming back to splitting characters, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and this whole land of untold stories thing. One of the things I think is really cool about this episode is seeing the mixing of science and magic, which even if you think about Greg and Tamara, what they were doing was based on magic, Peter Pan's magic. So it wasn't really science. But they used the science of a taser. They used magic in the science. Yeah, a so, magical taser. Yeah, it could have been a magical bunny and it could have had the same effect. But here, like even when we see Dr. Jekyll repairing Zelina's wand, he's using science to do so. And this whole realm, the land of untold stories, seems to be a very science-driven realm. We see the dirigibles. We see a lot of gears, a lot of steampunk design to everything. And that that's really cool to bring that in. I think it will set up for an interesting season six to see maybe a little bit of science versus magic. And, and certainly we've seen that before with Frankenstein, you know, that classic line, it's not magic, it's science. Did he say that line? Yes. Something like it. Oh. I thought that was from Spellbinders. But it's not actually magic versus science, like what Tamara was kind of talking about. I mean, she was using Ma Peter Pan's magic, but she was selling it as science is better than magic. Magic is evil. Yeah. And actually, when we started getting spoilers about the way the show was going, most of us predicted that they were setting up science versus magic. And nope, we kind of got things wrong. Well, they could still, because we don't completely know the nature of Mr. Hyde. True, but it was kind of like even just repairing the wand. It was like, here's this magical object, and he's putting it in this vice-like thing and pouring on mixtures and zapping it with electricity, and boom, good as new. It makes me kind of think of how, to some people, science will seem like magic. Yep, and that is actually one of Arthur C. Clarke's laws that he writes about. He was a very, very famous science fiction writer. A lot of the ways that people write science fiction 
and understand it today are because of Arthur C. Clarke. And he has these three laws. And the third one is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hmm. Hmm. That does certainly make sense uh, for the direction they're going with the story, too. But they've never tried to explain what Emma or Rumple or all of them do as being magic. But then what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde can do is science. They're using electricity. They're using these other things that are actual sort of scientific elements. And it makes me wonder, is is Mr. Hyde lusting after more and he wants magic now he's gotten the taste of what kind of looks like magic but he realizes there's only so far science can do he wants magic beyond that how new do you think he is like how long has he been around yeah i'm gonna say he's been around for a while because the orderly has been around for a while we think and he's got some level of respect for Hyde because he knows how to give the serum to Jekyll and he knows pretty much everything that's going on. And he's gotten really good at making him swallow the serum, which like, I would think that would be a little more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He just, it seems like his horizons have not been expanded all that much. Like he lives on a dirigible, I guess. And he hears about Storybrook, the little podunk town that was created by a curse. And he's like, that place that's where i want to live that's where i'm going to take (laughs) this very big kingdom and move all of these people with untold stories to that little village i hear they have some vacancies in the woods well he does know rumple yeah he has knowledge of the dark one right the dark one which makes me think that we're talking pre regina's dark curse and for him to be the warden And he even referenced something about seeing a lot of people come to this land. Sounds like he's been the warden for a very long time. Mm. Mm. It's probably true. Do you think that he might be a kind of quasi-hero? Because if you think about what he says to Regina at the very end of the episode, he talks about all these friends that he's brought with him, that he's going to let their stories play out. He wants to give them an ending, it sounds like. But didn't they flee there to get away from their lives and their stories? Isn't that what he said in there in that land? Didn't he I thought he said that they came for like many different reasons. They're just forgotten characters with untold stories. Yeah, then yeah, he it's... could be kind of heroic in his motivations, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he's going about it in the right way. Is there not anything you would sacrifice for your family? I'm quoting from Star Trek Wrath of Khan, if you didn't realize that. And probably all the geeks and nerds are like, no, you didn't say it exactly right. Sorry. Daniel! (laughs) Sorry, geeks and nerds. That was my impression of Kirk, by the way. Um, (laughs) I mean, he's probably not going about it in the right manner, and he's definitely a threat and a menace. But this idea of, well, these are forgotten characters whose stories have never been told, we need to let them be told, kind of sounds like a heroic quest akin to, say, the savior in season one. Hmm. Depending on who those people are. Well... So, like, one realm's savior is another realm's villain, kind of? Maybe, because 
who we consider saviors and villains really depends on our perspective and where we're standing in that story. So to these characters that are living on Forgotten Character Island, I mean, Hyde could be their their hero, their savior, because maybe they want their stories to play out. Because he does say that they're trapped. So to them, he might be a kind of savior, even from our perspective and from the storybook gang's perspective. He's not. By, yeah, well, one would think that it's relatively universal to not take someone's wife captive and trade an entire town already inhabited by people for her and then sure. kind of do a hostile takeover with your own people. These people that he's bringing, there were a couple characters that I managed to pull out um, by looking at the screenshots. And so this is where I'm kind of confused on what they mean by untold stories. Now, those characters you're referring to in screenshots, you're talking about the book, the other storybooks no, in the I'm library? I'm actually talking about the characters as they're walking through, like, the open marketplace. Oh, what characters did you recognize? Okay, so there are three gentlemen standing in brown uniforms, and as we walk by, we hear them say, all for one. So they are the three musketeers from yeah. Alexander Dumas's novel. There is a couple, a man and a woman. She's dressed in white, and he is dressed very, I'm going to say like cliche Arabian. Um, he's even got a, a turban on his head. And it, like a lot of us said, is that Aladdin and Jasmine, which might explain why we never saw them in Wonderland when we went to Agrabah. There's also, you called it steampunk, and I agree, steampunk science fiction that looks a lot like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne. Um, there's also... A woman, we first see her, she's got big curly hair and this sparkly kind of skull cap on. And she's wearing what looks like very cliche Hollywood gypsy clothing. And we thought, well, maybe she's Esmeralda. Hmm. Although we have seen a character before that looked like she was Esmeralda. That's she was true. the one that had her heart pulled out and mm -hmm. was killed. But they, yeah, they could go either way with that because they never named either. Right. With the library books, though, we'll talk about this in a little bit as well, but with the library books, um, there was a reference to Captain Nemo in one of the books, and that is a story by Jules Verne. And a lot of this world does kind of look like this steampunk, machiney science fiction. Yeah, and the book, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was written by Robert Louis Stevenson who is best known for that book, as well as Treasure Island and Kidnapped. So maybe we'll see Long John Silver come in, and then we'll have like a pirate duel between Captain Hook and Long John Silver, <laughs> even though we've kind of already met a Captain Silver. My own personal wish list here, Adam and Eddie, if you're listening, I would really like it if Cthulhu was living in the waters underneath the island. That's... I would really like that. I'll bet it's living under a lot of things, whatever that is. <laughs> I mean, his his house is supposed to be pretty far deep down in the ocean, so bring in the Lovecraft. I'm ready for it. Huh. A couple of interesting things about the Jekyll and Hyde origin. In the original story by Robert Louis Stevenson, Jekyll was the real person. And Hyde was the one that comes out of this and, and the alternate uh, persona. 
and through the book. And I'm going to get the book. And I highly recommend that you get the book to read as well. If you don't have a copy, we'll have links in the show notes to purchase one of several versions. Maybe there's even a free ebook version on amazon.com. Any purchase you make through there does help support the podcast. But here's the other thing, and this is what I think I'll probably do, is if you sign up for Audible using our link, oncepodcast.com slash audible, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E, you can get a free audiobook to keep when you sign up. So completely free audiobook of your choice. And they have The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on there. So you could listen to the story of it. And I'm going to try and get the audiobook as well because I love audiobooks. They're a great way to consume information. I've really enjoyed audiobooks again recently. But if you'd like to purchase through either of those links, then that does help support the podcast too. We'll have those in the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 252. But in the original, that's the thing. In the original, the good guy was the main character, basically. The bad guy was what came out. And the way that the story goes in the book, you don't realize that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person until the end of the book. Spoilers. And yeah. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> One of the other things, too, is there was this thing, and I, yeah, I did my research on Wikipedia, so I didn't read the entire book yet, but there's this thing that Jekyll is concerned about that if he doesn't get this substance, Hyde might become Jekyll's permanent personality. I wonder if Kitsis and Horowitz have taken the once upon a time spin on things and think about this. What if... Dr. Jekyll is the alternate persona to Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde is actually the original. Because after all, Dr. Jekyll did say there's good in there and it's always trying to get out. Hmm. He did say that. However, it's his lab. Yeah. It seems like he's the only one with knowledge to do all those things. Well, what if that's why Hyde created... Jekyll, though, because Jekyll does say we all imagine our our other selves the way we want to we envision them ourselves. So, you know, he envisions his darkness as a literal monster. Well, if Hyde wants to envision his better self as a quiet, timid, really good scientist, then that's how mm-hmm. hot Jekyll would come out. Here's the other thing. In the original story, Mr. Poole was the loyal butler to Dr. Jekyll. But here, Mr. Poole is the loyal butler assistant to Mr. Hyde. So he became loyal over time, and he seems much more loyal to Mr. Hyde, which makes me think Mr. Hyde is the original. And he built this friendship and loyalty uh, with Mr. Poole. And Mr. Poole is more interested in seeing Mr. Hyde continue to be who he really is, and that's Mr. Hyde, not Dr. Jekyll. Hmm. Here's an interesting little tidbit I ran across when doing some basic research on the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know how in Once Upon a Time, Dr. Jekyll is on the property there as a gardener. Well, I ran across this. The name Jekyll Uh, for the book, was borrowed from Reverend Walter Jekyll, a friend of Stevenson, and younger brother of horticulturalist and landscape designer Gertrude Jekyll. Maybe that's where the writers got the idea to make Dr. Jekyll a, a gardener. 
I had actually never heard of this story or the phrase Jekyll and Hyde until I looked it up after this episode. What? Really? We must not say it here in Canada. I don't know. Wow. Well, everybody in Canada is too polite to have a Mr. Hyde. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Canada and America are Jekyll and Hyde. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I think that might be true. (laughs) Uh, I was so lost. I was like, is this Dr. Whale's land? I like had no idea. That's so funny because a lot of people speculated that Dr. Whale was the Jekyll and Hyde character. Oh, back back then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Back before I was part of your podcast. Yeah. That was was back in the mid between seasons one and two when Dan Flynn was still a part of the podcast, (laughs) which by the way, I chatted with Dan Flynn recently and we're going to try and work out to have a fun game show episode for once podcast during the summer hiatus and Dan Flynn will be joining us for that. Can it only be season one and two a trivia? Because that's all I remember. No, it's going to be beyond that because (laughs) season one and two is only what Dan has seen. So we're going to have some fun with the show as well as have a fun time with Dan Flynn, too. We should get our readers to write trivia about us, like name two of Jeremy's biggest pet peeves, (laughs) blood magic and squid ink (laughs) and the burning red room for bonus points. (laughs) Yeah, So watch for that this summer. Family Uh, feud style. (laughs) Also coming up, as long as I'm mentioning what's coming up on the podcast, is we'll be doing a review in our next episode of the podcast. We'll have a review of the movie Alice in Wonderland Through the Looking Glass, since that'll be really fun for you, we're sure. So watch for that in the next episode of Once Podcast. And beyond that, I don't know what other episodes we'll be doing in the summer. I know many times before I've said we would do other episodes and maybe interview some of the cast. I'm not going to make any kind of promise like that for this summer because there's a lot of stuff that I know I'm working on. And it's it's nice to have some breaks from the podcast and be able to work on other things. And I know that you'll miss us. So we still have the forums going. You can join those and you can tweet us and all of that stuff at any time. But uh, do continue to connect with us and stay subscribed to the podcast so you receive every episode automatically in case we put out some fun bonus episodes during the summer. So getting back to the land of untold stories, I have a question. How did this land come to exist? Hmm. I think it is simply a land that they took over and called the land of untold stories because he said something about it being, it had come to be known as the land of untold stories. So people just flock there when, I mean, how do you know that your story is untold? Because Mm -hmm. going back to some characters that I pointed out in the square, the three musketeers are there and that's a complete novel. So why are they there? I mean, are they untold because maybe they haven't found D'Artagnan yet and he has to become the fourth musketeer. I mean, how do you know your story is untold? What what draws you to this place? Yeah, he sounded like they were all fleeing something and I had questions. Or is it like the incomplete story? Because that's something that Mr. Hyde wanted to do is bring everyone to Storybrooke where they can play out their stories, which for some reason they can't do in the land where they are now. Do you think maybe it was a byproduct of the curse when just going back to the pilot, Gold said no more happy endings, which means no more 
finished stories if everyone gets a happy ending, which fairy tales generally do. That could be. And I like that idea because that goes back to the idea that the dark curse was huge. It was universal, not only limited to certain realms or certain people that Regina or Rumble had interacted with. Why haven't they left then? Because, I mean, Emma broke that curse back in season one. And they apparently are still trapped, which is why Hyde has to make a deal with Rumple. They're a little slow. (laughs) They had no way of making a portal until Zelina's wand came in. And even then, Hyde could only make a portal to pull one person through. But incidentally, he got Beldora's box instead of a person. They had no fountains. I'm about to say they don't have pennies in... (laughs) The land of untold stories. Or they just don't have the ability to wish themselves out. They didn't have wishing magic. That's sad. I mean, he he does say that they're trapped, which makes me think that there is something trapping them there. I don't think you drop a line into the story like that without later explaining it to me. So I do think in season six, we're probably going to see why they are trapped and how they are trapped. We can get on board with that. Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering if it has something to do with Rumple because again... Hyde seems to know him. He has a nasty scar on his face, and I want to see him get it. <laughs> it's a huge. It's a I huge. I mean, I want to scar. see how he got it. Yeah. I'm sure that that is going to be part of season six A. You so, don't put a huge scar like that on a character and then not explain why they are so mangled. Yes. And then one of the things that everybody's asking is what's his history with the Dark One because he obviously was pretty suspicious, and it was based around. Everybody possibly having been sent by the Dark One. Um, but then he also knows some current events. So then the question is, does he have a personal history or is it just reputation and knowledge? Current events? Well, he seemed to know things about what had been happening recently in Storybrooke and with the heroes and things like that. He knew about Belle being under sleeping curse because that's what Snow had said right. when they were in the prison. He knew about the Dark One. He only learned about Storybrooke because they mentioned it and it sounded interesting to him. I don't think he knows about anything outside of his world other than that's what he knew before true. going to there. That's probably true. So then... So then, but still, is it Dark One reputation or personal experience? And was it this Dark One? Hmm. I mean, I assume he's not that old. But then they do have a way of making everybody absolutely ancient one way or another and related. Well, maybe... Brother. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Rumpel went to the land of untold stories when he was still trying different ways to find Balefire before he really got Regina on her path to cast the Dark Curse. Because he keeps looking for different methods to get him to the land without magic sooner. So maybe he went to the land of untold stories thinking, Balefire, his story is incomplete, so why don't I go there to see if my son accidentally wound up there? Or, Mm. here's an idea combining what you just said and Jeremy's theory. What if Rumpel accidentally created the land of untold stories when he was doing some kind of test run with the dark curse. Ooh. Ooh, because they do have their happy endings ripped away. Yeah. They're trapped. 
There is a town in Maine where all of the fairy tale <laughs> characters you know are trapped. <laughs> you remember that from season one? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. And that would make Hyde their savior, which would give yeah. him this quasi-heroic quest that they set him up to bring back the happy endings for these people. And why Hyde is so upset at Rumple? Yeah, I like that. Interesting. So, leaving the land of untold stories and going back to New York, I think we need to talk about Crystal Gate, which is Rumpelstiltskin. What does he choose? The crystal or the bell box? Because uh, <laughs> obviously chooses the crystal because he's Rumpelstiltskin. Okay, so this has been probably the biggest debate this week uh, over at the forums. And I have two cases to make. One that is, yes, he went for the crystal, but because it's the logical choice. And one, he went for the crystal because he's obsessed with power. <laughs> so AKA wrote, Rumpel would have to know that someone was after Belle. At the time, he didn't know who was opening a portal, but did know that it was someone who obviously had magic to do so. If we assume that magic people can, quote, feel the aura, unquote, of the crystal, why would he assume that they were after anything else? I think he looks at Belle as in deciding, what should I do now? The only thing that can save her is the crystal. He then grabs for it, looks back, sees the portal take Bell, and then lunges for the mattress like he can't believe that just happened. In other words, he expected the portal to take the crystal and leave Bell alone. I Yeah, I would agree with that. Because people have been trying to steal the crystal from him all episode. But Sci-Fi Girl makes a really good point. Think about this. If your home is on fire, or if there is an earthquake, or threat of any other imminent disaster, you don't think about what is most likely to be hurt. You grab what you can carry and run out of your home. In that split second, life or death, what do you grab? Your wallet and laptop, or your toddler and cat? I think for most people, it would be the toddler or the cat. Because no matter how necessary your wallet and laptop are, the only thing truly irreplaceable is life. Rumpel didn't know where the portal was targeted. It could have swallowed up the whole room or even just him. If he only grabbed Bell and lost the crystal, he would have still had Bell. Even if they were taken to some new place, at least they would be together. If he lost the crystal, he would have just to have found some other way to wake her. As long as he has Bell, there is someone to wake. Because what good is having the crystal without Bell? I don't know. I could definitely see a crisis on his face. You could see him looking at like he's in the middle and see him looking at the Beldora's box and looking at the crystal and ultimately going for the crystal. I I think it was his going after power. Well, I think he goes after what he thinks is most valuable. Yeah. He can't imagine that someone will go after Bell because surely magic is more valuable, which I think says a lot about Rumpelstiltskin's mindset right now. And it could be that he didn't think Bell was in any danger. But yeah, sure, because everybody's been trying to get the crystal all episode. But it's like Sci-Fi Girl said, when there's a, a crisis, do you go for someone who is, you know, your wife, who is a living entity without whom you, you know, you can't live? Or do you go for the magical object that in his mind he absolutely thinks he need because he thinks he needs more power in order to wake her up? 
he's placing a higher value on the crystal because in his mind, magic is always more valuable. I think he went for the power. Sorry, unpopular opinion. (laughs) Send hate to my Twitter. (laughs) Well, I don't know whether it speaks to motivation or not, but I was very reminded of when he lost Balefire through the portal. Yes. And Mm. he was grabbing at the ground and calling his name. It was very similar after the portal disappeared with Bell. Absolutely. It was, I think, a very deliberate parallel. Side note. Speaking of people trying to steal the crystal, what did Henry do with the quill after he used it the first time? Magic, because it got taken out of Storybrooke. Mm, Or I just made that up. Did it? (laughs) I think it would have been real funny if he had just stolen the crystal in the exact same way a second time. The crystal had the tin foil on it by then, so. Oh right. right. (laughs) But I'm assuming Bob got his magic back. Once Regina untethered the crystal. Was that Underworld Bob, by the way? Yes. Sure. Huh. So he got to come back to you. And we're talking about the pen whom we have affectionately oh. <laughs> named Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Henry, let's talk about Violet. Violet. <laughs> oh, Violet. I think, it, well, this was one of my favorite things about the two-part episode is getting to see Violet more often in the episode instead of it just being this character whose pretty much only purpose was to listen to Only You by Yaz. In this episode, (laughs) she played a much bigger part to the storyline, got to see a little bit of development with her character, got to see Henry falling in like or in love or something. But she fascinates me a little bit, and I wonder how much she'll be in season six Because we know she doesn't have to go back. Her father's from Connecticut, which that's interesting there. How did just to make a joke? Yes. A bad joke. We were so stunned. I mean, this has been staring us in the face since season 5A and not one of us guessed it. Like the fact that he's a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is Mark Twain's 89 novella. Yeah. I was like, ah, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) <laughs> how did none of us get that because the main character's name is harry morgan and he's sir morgan oh <laughs> oh nice. did, didn't did none of you guys pick up no i didn't know oh. that at all i i'm okay. not that well versed in <laughs> i don't more know classic about any of fiction this. it almost went over my head yeah so there's a novel written by Mark Twain in 1889 called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court about a guy named Harry Morgan who gets sucked back in time to Camelot. Oh. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm wondering then, how did he get sucked back in time to Camelot? Well, I don't know exactly, but (laughs) there's kind of a popular theory that ties violet to the story at large interesting and we've seen portals that can you know like open in between our world and the enchanted forest like for example the lily egg went through what if somehow (laughs) what if somehow sir morgan fell through maybe the same portal as the lily egg and wound up meeting Maleficent 
and, you know, getting turned into a dragon and having another like daughter <laughs> because it is super suspicious huh. that all of a sudden in this episode, it's not that Violet's mother just died. She died from magic, which screams missing parent alert. Be on the lookout. <laughs> and Violet and Lily both have flower names, both have dark hair, and they've both got a missing parent. One's missing her father, one's missing her mother. I'm going to call it their sisters. They need to go to summer camp and then switch places with each other. Yes. And see if their parents recognize. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a theory that actually... Uh, the Dark One Deary and Price of Magic sort of came up with this week. Mm. And I was like, you know what? Crazier things have happened. Sure. Yeah. I, since having to drink coffee and other things <laughs> on this podcast, if you can come up with a connection between characters, I'm now more likely to believe it. <laughs> There's no way that Neil is Balefire. <laughs> <laughs> that no, that, that was not what I said. I said oh. there's no way... Balefire went to Neverland. To Neverland. I did always yeah. believe that Balefire was Henry's father. <laughs> the Neverland thing was what I didn't like. And also Tamara being of any significance to the storyline, that was something else I didn't think. Yeah. I didn't think she was her. And I was wrong there. <laughs> I thought it was really cute, the relationship between Violet and Henry. And every time she touches his hand, Henry looks at it. <laughs> That's There's like, a Whoa. girl touching me. <laughs> Maybe he's afraid she's going to breathe fire. <laughs> I remember once back in, I believe it was season one of the podcast. I made some joke about, is Henry going to have to go around town kissing everyone in order to wake them up from the curse? But that's not the way it happened. But here he did kiss a girl and he liked it, but <laughs> no curse was broken. <laughs> For once, somebody kissed somebody on the show and nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet it's not true love. Oh. Oh, you want the Violet Believers to come after you? The Violet Believers? Henry's going to have to go to Cinnabon and say, sorry, but I found someone else. (laughs) And it's pizza and it's cheesy and it doesn't lie. He shared truthful pizza in New York with yes. Violet. Yes, he did. <laughs> I literally wrote in my notes, is this a date or a quest? Come on, Henry. <laughs> uh, both? You're wasting time. I'm going to destroy magic. My relatives are chasing me with questionable intentions. And um, pizza? I'll have to show her around the city because it's overwhelming. I did like Violet kind of keeping him on task. She's like, um... Yep, New York's cool. Aren't we on like an important mission thing? She's also a really bad liar. And I wrote earlier that when Henry said nothing, we didn't find anything to Emma. If Emma's superpower didn't kick in, her eyes certainly should have. When Violet looked at him with a little smirk, like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) He turns his head and winks at him. Pretty much that's what she did, though. (laughs) If you watch the scene. By the way, there's a little line from the song Only You by Yaz that says, Wonder if you'll understand it's just the touch of your hand. I actually love that song. So I knew that lyric, but I didn't connect it. And, you know, we never heard that song in this episode. But they're 13? Yeah, about (laughs) in universe. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, 
puppy love, little crushes. I get. I think Henry doesn't have friends, and maybe he should have a friend first <laughs> and not be, you know, making out with girls on the corner of Granny's. With two mothers watching him. <laughs> yeah. Regina looked way more offended. Emma looked like it was cute. <laughs> just just because I looked at their faces and Regina was like, yeah. I'm going to put a stop to this. And Emma was just like, aw. Well, it's very similar to what happened in Neil's apartment <laughs> with Regina saying, they have a song? Regina was like, I totally understand ripping out her heart. But that's wrong. I know that now. And I also, I thought the evil queen was gone. <laughs> what if just like... Believing brings back magic. What if the evil queen is brought back by her son kissing girls? Speaking of bringing back, they brought back the dragon. Apparently, he was only mostly dead and not fully dead when they did that thing with what looked like a taser, but it was actually, remember, a magical item from Peter Pan that just so happened to look and sound like a taser. At that point in the season, it wasn't from Peter Pan, but that's okay. So he's back. And he said he was more resilient than Peter Pan thought. Okay, so just never fully killed. No underworld trip required. Yeah. Dragons are pretty resilient. I mean, if you look at their mythology, especially Eastern culture, they are very, very hard to kill. Mostly because they keep out of the way of everybody. They live up in the mountains and no one goes to see them unless you really have a death wish. Um. So I'm not overly surprised that whatever he is, and I think he might be a dragon that put on human skin. He is really, really resilient. I suppose that magic sucking taser sure seemed to shut him down like a bad mannequin at Chuck E. Cheese. He did say right before, though, you haven't met the real me, though. So I think he was probably shocked, but... You know, his dragon self very quickly rebounded. And then he moved to Chinatown, like you do. Yeah. You'd think he'd be happier up in the mountains somewhere. This magic is very weak. Yes, for someone who is kind of immortal, who can survive a magical taser, he couldn't open a portal. Although, I suppose I would have cried foul at that if all he had to do was put a giant lotus in water and like move his hands and then open a portal. No wishing required. I would have been really mad. Come to think of it. He did specifically say that land or that realm. So it made it sound like he might have been able to open a portal to somewhere else, but not that place for some reason. Well, do you think he was testing Emma and the gang? Because it's like, I've done everything I can do, but you guys have something you can do. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Like, he needs Henry to uh, believe again. He needs Henry to see the good in magic. Yeah. So. Could be. Yeah, so he's kind of like, oh, darn, it didn't work. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Hey, Henry, how you doing? (laughs) So he's a liar? I feel like sometimes wise people tell little fibs so that we can learn good lessons in especially, life. Yeah, especially if your trope is basically the wise old man. And that's what he is. He tells little fibs. He does, you know, his little riddle speak. So that way the hero has to go on some sort of mini quest, both externally and internally, to achieve some kind of enlightenment. I think that's the trope I want to be when I grow up. 
the wise old man. Yeah. You will need a long beard and a stick. You okay. will need a rock to sit on, preferably okay. in a woods at a path that is, div- you know, diverged. How about and, robes? Yeah. Ro- <laughs> you can't speak in like complete make sense sentences ever. You have right. to like, you have to give only a, a quarter of what you actually know about a situation. Think Yoda. Yoda is an alien mm. version of that trope. So, mm. yes, you will need a robe, a stick, a rock to sit upon, and some riddles. And you're good to go. And secrets. And secrets. I I really hope that we do get some of the dragon's backstory. In some ways, I doubt we will. But in some ways, it seems like if they're going to explain how he got to our world, how he's been here for a long time, how he has magic... And all of this and how he knows so much, then it seems like season six would be a good opportunity for them to yeah. do that. He needs to get way cooler though. <laughs> he was he was already cooler this time than he was last time. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Well, we never thought they would bring him back. I mean, we always kind of joke like, oh, what if they brought back the dragon? But, you know, we never really believed what we were saying. And then suddenly we saw the promo for these two episodes. And this was actually a shock. We didn't have any kind of spoilers that he was coming back. Um, yeah, this was the one spoiler I saw accidentally about this episode was I saw a photo with the dragon and a couple of the other characters. I saw nothing. I, I was unspoiled. <laughs> You're unspoiled. <laughs> well, I mean, we saw them shooting in Chinatown. And even then, someone joked and was like, oh, what if they're going to go see the dragon? But none of us ever believe it. Because we're like, no, he's season two. They've wrapped that. They never go back. But there he was. So what are your favorite moments from the finale, these two episodes? My favorite moment, I think, was seeing Emma finally say, I love you, when death wasn't on the line. That she knew of. And they made sure that you knew (laughs) that there was no chaos and nothing and that she was just saying it very genuinely. Yes. (laughs) No, I liked that moment, too. What about your favorite moments? I really liked the whole Snow and Emma and Regina on the rooftop banding together and them not not leaving even though she wanted them to. I like I like seeing that character development and friendship. Yeah, that was nice. Even though it was a terrible idea, it was really <laughs> nice that they stuck by her. Yeah, I think all the for me it was in particular obviously Regina's exposition of where her character is or was (laughs) her actual character development it's the best character development on the entire in the entire series i think so far and it's things that we've only been able to speculate about because they never stop running and magicking and doing things like that and so here they finally sat down and regina told us what life is like for her and it was great But even everything surrounding that, the changes in her relationships with all these people that have become her friends and her family, and the ways that they stood by her, was fun to watch. My favorite moment was definitely Henry at the fountain and the the pennies from heaven. I kind of already went into why. I know it was super cheesy, but it was just such a, a great moment that I think really sold some of the bigger themes of the show since season one which is the idea of belief and hope and happy endings. 
before we move into some of our final wrap-up of this episode conversation, I want to thank some people who left some very kind reviews for us in iTunes. We got a bunch recently. I think it was because some people realized there have been some kind of not nice ones very recently. So we got a bunch from international stores in iTunes. Iba Steph from the United States said, best Once Upon a Time podcast. I love this podcast. I always look forward to them as soon as a new Once Upon a Time episode airs. Jacqueline is a Greek mythology expert, and she has made the Hades arc so much more enjoyable. Here, here. Daniel and Jeremy always leave me laughing. This is a clean, family-friendly podcast that you can listen to without worrying about the kids hearing something they shouldn't. Keep up the great work, Once Podcast. Apple Red 24 from the United States said, I enjoy this podcast very much. And Jeremy, Aaron, Hunter, and Jacqueline are an amazing team of podcasters along with Daniel. Trekkie Mom. No, sorry. That was like totally an insult there because it's actually Trekkie Mum from oh. Australia said, a must listen to for any once fan. This is my go-to podcast for all things once. It is very professional. The hosts have great chemistry and the discussion is very thought-provoking and interesting. Five stars. B.A. Park from the United States said, the companion for the show. This podcast lets us dive further into the show we already love. We get to experience a couple extra hours every week of Storybrooke and our favorite characters. Thank you for the amazing discussions. B. Rye 252013 from mm-hmm. the United States said, While I do think the show has gone downhill since season three, these guys are still very devoted to the show and will clearly be writing to the end. And lastly, Xylus from Australia said, Daniel J. Lewis and co. are a joy to listen to as they discuss every new and magical episode of Once Upon a Time. The theories and speculation they present are very thoughtful and interesting. If you want to listen to a Once podcast that is informative and funny, this is it. Smiley face, thumbs up. Thank you for these kind reviews in iTunes. They're really encouraging to us and they help other people choose to listen to the podcast as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you haven't left a kind or honest review for the podcast yet, then please go to oncepodcast.com and click on the iTunes or one of the other buttons there. That's also where you can go to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already receive every episode automatically. Those are in the show notes as well at oncepodcast.com slash 252. There were a couple interesting little things that popped up in this episode, uh, some miscellaneous stuff. One of the things was uh, the collection of stories that we saw in the other books inside of the library. One odd thing, since, you know, I see the golden bird apparently everywhere now. Well, (laughs) I think the new version of the golden bird is the story, The Water Babies, A Fairy Tale for a Land Baby by Charles Kingsley from 1863. I don't know how they even did this or what they were thinking when this happened, but when you see Henry turning the pages, every page that he's turning from is the same. And it's an excerpt of the story. It's the exact same part of that story. Huh. And so he's just turning a new picture over the same story over and over and over again. A production mistake. Oops. But some of the pictures that we saw are Gulliver's Travels, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Charles Kingsley's children's novel, The Water Babies. Uh, that's some text is from that. Um, Don Quixote and Paul Bunyan with Babe the Blue Ox. Right. Basically, 
they were saying, guys, are you ready for Once Upon a Time season 26? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can totally see them bringing in Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because that fits so well with the steampunk theme and with the Jekyll and Hyde kind of universe. Do we get a submarine off in the bay at in Storybrooke? Yeah, just parked right there next to the Jolly Roger. Yeah. The Nautilus totally pops up. Yep. Yeah. I want this to happen. Well, I thought Gulliver's travels made a lot of sense because essentially Gulliver travels to all these different they're not realms, but they're these foreign exotic locations that no one's ever been to before. And the picture that's inside Henry's book is of Gulliver being tied down by the Lilliputians, which are these tiny, tiny, tiny little things, little people. (laughs) And then the Don Quixote picture, of course, is Don Quixote tilting at the windmill. Speaking of books, the Robin Hood book that Regina found inside of Neil's apartment. On the front, it has the name of graphic designer and production staff member Neil Westlake. And we've seen his name on other props before, too. So, Neil, awesome to see you out there. And Well, your name, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and on the front, it said, Prince of Thieves or People's Hero? Who is the real Nottingham legend? Robin Hood, myth and legend, tells the romantic tales of Robin Hood as he fought back oppressed control. <laughs> hmm. And of course, the letter was still there because Robin realized before putting it in the mail that the Postal Service can't find Storybrooke. So, you know who else we can't find? Who? Dopey. Dopey. Is he still a tree outside of town? I mean, he could be having lunch with Lily and and Maleficent. He's probably back in town now because he was probably in the land of untold stories and now he's back. That's something that Samantha Supernatural fan pointed out is that we've never seen Dopey. He's still a tree. As far as we know, we never saw any resolution to that. So Samantha, are we down to now? Uh, Six. Six. Yes. They usually have one in peril and six in active duty, but they haven't really had a whole lot to do as of late. They didn't get to go to the underworld. Well, I mean, look how much fun they had in Camelot and how useful they were. <laughs> would, right. you, would you really want to go to the underworld after, you know, you begged and pleaded to go on an adventure and then basically you sat in a corner until your memories were erased? Right. I don't think the underworld was anywhere even normal adventurers would want to go. What other random things did any of you, my co-hosts, notice? Well, Violet told Henry she's sorry about Robin. He just says thanks, which could be, I guess, sort of as a friend sort of thing. But then it got me thinking that Robin was in a sense sort of another almost stepdad. Henry kind of lost both potential new stepdads if there were weddings involved in practically the same day. (laughs) Although Robin had a lot more points going for him in the father figure role model department than the often dead pirate hook although hook was sort of a father figure to henry's father which makes him sort of a grandfather figure 
<laughs> who's in a relationship with his mother. <laughs> Who Henry huh. just calls like <laughs> my moms now. They're just his right. moms. Moms, please. Moms. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's a pretty good chance that Hook will become more than a sort of stepfather because during the I love you scene, they framed it in a really deliberate way where if you're staring at the negative space right between Emma and Hook, it's a giant wedding dress. In the window of modern fashion yep. store. Really? Yep. Yeah. Because when they shot this scene, we we couldn't hear anything, but we saw the reaction, the kiss and the picking up. And instantly someone said, hey, there's a giant wedding dress inside modern fashions. And <laughs> we all thought it was an engagement until a very recent hot seat interview. Oh. Interesting. I, where would Hook wear the wedding ring? Would he put it on the hook? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he, he has to keep it there with like super glue. <laughs> That's awesome. One of our forum writers, Sci-Fi Girl, uh, said that, of course, Rumple is staying at the hotel door because that translates to gold hotel. Ah, uh, nice. <laughs> and that hotel does not exist in New York. I did look for it, but I forgot to translate. Maybe it's actually called like Big Purple Cloud Hotel. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so since I can't help but suggest rewrites for some reason, here's, here's my, my head rewrite of some of this. Actually keeping the same elements for the most part. They could have had the peace between villains that I want them to have. We could have seen a little bit of time pass. Basically, they all went home, changed, and went to kind of the wake for Robin. That was it. And then there was magic happening. If they'd taken a few more days, said goodbye to all the extras, everybody could have been there to say goodbye to them. And then stuff could have started happening. <laughs> yeah. So I was happy to see they were going to start to get a little bit of normal. But then Hyde was there. He wasn't just working on getting back to Storybrooke as a threat. He's already there. Does that mean Rumple's back? No, Rumple. We don't know where Rumple is. I would have assumed that he got to come back with Hyde. Well, Hyde... With Bell. Hyde said he knew where the answer Rumple seeks or where Rumple needed to go for help. Mm -hmm. So you think they traded? Yes. But how did Hyde get back? Well, Rumple probably opened a portal with Zelina's wand. And kept the wand and yeah. went somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And we don't know where that somewhere else is. Interesting. So do they get to rest then even while Storybrooke is occupied? I want them to at least... No sleep and take showers and stuff change their clothes hang out yeah. with their babies yeah. it is funny if you look at the timeline over at oncepodcast.com slash timeline shout out to keb who manages that for us a lot of this stuff happens very 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 close yeah. to each other because remember just only a few hours ago before all of this starts is when snow white said to emma i hope we never again have a day like today Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I mean, just to go back a little way, they were battling, well, they were in Camelot, then they were battling the Dark Ones, and I guess there was some time that passed, but then but then it was Underworld, and then they were back, and then they were in New York, and 
it's just been all in like two weeks or something. I don't know. Which is part of why we need a little bit of a catch up over the hiatus so that they, that, like maybe we jump back in and it says one year from then or something like that. The year of Hyde. Yeah. <laughs> Amazingly enough, the most peaceful season they had was season one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. All they had to deal with was like, um, like affairs and murder and stuff and politics. It was so pedestrian. There was no. Magic. There were like big time gaps. I remember in between Graham dying and Emma running for sheriff, it was like six weeks or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was the actual time the show was on the winter hiatus. Yeah, because all of season one actually takes place from October until about May which was the actual run of season one. And ever since then, the seasons have become incredibly condensed to happening within the span of a week to, you know, two weeks, Um, which is why Henry's only 13 and why they are two years behind us out here in the real Mm. world. That's what Adam and Eddie promised would not happen at Paley Fest in, I think, season two. Somebody basically asked them in reference to the little boy on Lost who basically was growing up too much and they had to then, I, I don't remember, kill his character off or something. Um, Definitely they, were something. <laughs> they, they basically said, like, nope, time's going to be a year at a time, just like a season at a time. And then... They broke that pretty much in season two. And I also have to remember that that's the same interview that they said that Emma was going to date a past president in season seven. So oh, one was real and one was a joke, but <laughs> maybe they were both joking. <laughs> a random little thing I noticed is I think this is the first time that they've ever directly referred to Geppetto's parents as the marionettes. They're yeah. in Rumpel's shop. We've seen them many times before, but they've never actually said, these are Geppetto's parents. They mentioned the dead people marionettes in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your theories for season six? We got this feedback from Irvin saying, as far as season six is concerned, I couldn't help but think about the concept of splitting in psychology. And he sent us a link to the Wikipedia article on that. We'll have that in the show notes. Irvin says, essentially, splitting is a person being unable to accept both the good and bad within him or her. We saw that quite literally with Regina and Dr. Jekyll in this episode. And I think this will be the running theme through at least season 6A. My prediction is that Mr. Hyde's plan will be to use Dr. Jekyll's serum to split the bad selves from the good selves from the inhabitants of Storybrooke. Then, once the bad selves are extracted, he will try to get rid of the good halves. We've seen a similar plan executed with the spell of Shattered Sight in season 4A. Instead of becoming their worst selves, the worst selves of the inhabitants will actually become their own person. I'm really looking forward to all the possibilities. However, I really hope a season based on the concept of splitting will allow Lily to finish out her character arc. Yeah. That's that's one of the stranger things. Every once in a while I think of Lily and Maleficent, and it's just sort of like, well, I guess they're still in town, but nobody ever talks about them, just like everybody else on Forgotten Character Island. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think at some point, David's just going to pop up and be like, you did what? We are both. I told you. Long time ago. <laughs> both. Well, here's someone else who might be split. Uh, the Dark One Deary suggested that Rumpel will try to split himself so that the lighter side can wake Bell up. Huh. In which case, that would mean that Hyde sent Rumpel on a wild goose chase. Maybe. If Hyde had the solution right there. We've seen sort of two Davids. We've seen David and James, and it wasn't actually a split. But what would happen if David tried to split something? Would it just be dumb and dumber? (laughs) Well, that's actually one of my theories, although I don't include David in it, um, is that we're going to see a bunch of characters either take the potion willingly or unwillingly. Like, Nevermore suggested that Hyde will find a way to tamper with the town's water supply so everybody accidentally ingests the serum um but we would have zelina basically split off into redeemed mother and the wicked witch of the west so if rumpel were to come back to town he would be split into the pure dark one versus the spinner humble guy we met back in season one a desperate soul and then i'm kind of curious how you guys think the other characters might be split up like Emma, she doesn't have the darkness inside of her anymore. She's no longer a dark one. So if Emma were to take the potion, how would she split? She is still a dark one. Because remember, she heard the sound of the dagger calling her. Oh, that's like the burning red room after you've been under (laughs) a sleeping curse. Right. I don't think she's actually a dark one. I think she just, she's always going to be connected to that power, but she's not actually a dark one. Besides, but, I think that was part of true. the unsupervised episode. Well, Rumpel did say something about no one's ever been a dark one and survived after That's being true. a dark one. Yeah. So would she split into Emma and Dark Swan, or would she split into like Emma as she is now, and then season one, more jaded, aloof Emma? I don't think she's got enough darkness to split. That's true. So what if... It's Emma, as we know her now, and then what splits off is, like, the embodiment of true love. Like, if you could split off the Savior. Or this little angry 14-year-old Emma comes out and yeah, just starts yelling is... at everyone and kicking doors and throwing tantrums. That, that like is the greatest opposite. potential for darkness split off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't really see splitting being a major theme in Season 6 because they've already split a couple characters I don't see a motivation <laughs> to split more characters. I can't yes. believe we're saying that either. <laughs> I do think that season six will really be about this ultimate battle of good versus evil, especially as that battle relates to each person individually battling their own good and evil. So how will the show look? Because we have a pretty strict formula episode to episode we have a flashback and we have a present day you know except these last few episodes haven't had flashbacks that's true and i think but i've had an alternate world to look at yeah i think the writers aren't ready to divorce the show from the flashbacks yet though so this is kind of my theory on how season six will look we will have the present day stuff of course but instead of having flashbacks to Regina versus Snow White or something like that. 
every single episode, we're going to have one of these characters from Forgotten Character Island get to tell how they wound up in the land of untold stories and how their story originally started. So the first episode, we might see the three musketeers roaming around their land. Maybe they're searching for their fourth musketeer because they don't feel complete and they somehow get sucked over to the realm of untold stories. And so instead of seeing the flashbacks that we're used to, we get the new characters' flashbacks. Yeah, and that means a lot of flashbacks for characters that we don't care as much about. Well, that's true, but at this point, which is the worst to you, that we get flashbacks for characters we don't care about, or we have to sit through another round of Evil Queen Regina going after Snow White in some, you know, inconceivable timeline where somehow this fits in. Well, we'll get flashbacks about these new characters, no doubt. And certainly with Jekyll and Hyde and and maybe some other key characters that will be coming into the show for the sixth season. But I, I don't want each episode to become the backstory of some character we've never seen before and we'll never see again. Right. We've seen those kinds of episodes before, like... Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. And uh, a couple other characters too. And, you know, plus, please don't create more fake realms. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the show, one thing we all loved is that they were daring enough to change the story mm-hmm. and just make it real. And so a lot of the ones that they've had to create a fake realm for, they really could have just said, nope, didn't happen in that time frame. It happened in modern day or it happened in this time, but then there was this time thing and, or this frozen thing. And so they're still here, but it, it was our world or something. And I'm, I'm not sure why we've had to have all these little pocket story realms created. I just, I hope I don't have to see more. And Ariana Miller says, I liked those episodes. I felt the show was more interesting with the various fairy tale stories. And yeah, I guess originally, yeah, I liked it. As long as it felt like it fit into an overall sort of theme. Like Cinderella was really mostly contained to one episode, and that was the third episode. But it had a major change. I mean, Rumpelstiltskin was all through this story yeah. and that fed a lot of our early theorizing. We were just like, whoa, who is this Rumpelstiltskin? Has he altered every story we know? Did he weave himself through everybody's lives? And Cinderella fun. is a very iconic fairy tale story we know and very iconic with Disney too, one of the very early animations. And uh, I think for myself, um, this is one of the reasons why I hated Lost. When I first saw an episode of Lost, which was, I think, in season two, I thought it was stupid, the whole flashback <laughs> thing, because uh, I had no interest in the characters yet. So well, I didn't care about their backstories. And to be fair, as I recall, and Lost fans will understand, this was Michael's backstory, the uh, first one you saw, as I recall. There you go. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. It, I just remember. Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of a good point, though. It depends on which character you're watching. You know, Cinderella's story is great. And even the Hansel and Gretel one kind of is a good one because it incorporates another character that fits with the mm. larger story. So Regina trying to right. get the apple yeah. makes sense. But then you yeah, have... gave true. us the blind witch. That's true. Yeah. 
But then you have something like The Tower from season three, which was the Rapunzel episode, which was so totally filler that it didn't matter at all that we met her. Uh, Yeah, we don't quote it. People don't wish for that character to come back. Yeah. (laughs) Which forever people said, gravy or butter, and can we see the blind witch again? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot to look forward to in season six of Once Upon a Time, I think. And remember that it will be back on eight or seven central on Sunday nights. And I'm guessing that it will return on Sunday, September 25th. Now, the schedule for season six will be a bit different. Our other forum moderator, Matthew Paul, watched the ABC upfronts and shared with us that the new ABC president, Channing Dungey, said that she wants to move away from the long winter hiatuses. So we may no longer get this split season format and split season story arcs that we've been getting where we get 11 straight episodes, long winter hiatus, and then 11 more episodes. It may go back to something more like the season one or season two timing. Uh, I hope that doesn't go back to the ratings killing we don't know if it's on this week or not, because we just go yeah. every other week through the whole winter. Well, yeah. yeah. It means more breaks, and the viewers may not like that because of that, the confusion and such. But I'll be honest, as a podcaster about the show, I like the idea of more breaks through uh, the season because it means we get opportunities to take a little bit more time off from the podcast. Maybe. I like two hiatuses. Yeah. I do too, actually. <laughs> and for the ratings thing, though... I don't think it's going to play a factor if people are wondering. Don't think so. I was explaining this to maybe Aaron before that we're kind of at the point where we've got a very loyal set group of viewers and nothing at this point will probably end up driving them away. We may dip a little bit as we go along because all shows dip every single season. But I mean, we've been so steady this entire arc we used to have huge drops and we started the arc at a 1.3. We ended with a 1.2. So the fandom has said, we will always find you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) And speaking of always finding someone, you can find us on Twitter and follow (laughs) us there for our late breaking news and updates and such on Twitter at once podcast. And Connect with each of us individually as well on Twitter. I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. I'm Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon. That's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. I'm Aaron and I'm on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. I'm Jacqueline and you can follow me on Twitter at punk underscore bunny underscore 87. Please remember to go to the show notes for this episode at oncepodcast.com slash 252. You can continue the conversation there or in our forums, as well as start theorizing and sharing spoilers and such on the upcoming season of Once Upon a Time. And those links are also in the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 252. This podcast would not be possible without our great team of support. So special thanks to Corbin for sorting our feedback, Jack for writing our show notes, John Buchanan for editing our episodes, Hunter Hathaway and Jacqueline for providing spoilers, Jacqueline and Matthew Paul for moderating the forums, Keb for masterminding our timeline, Jenny for managing our Patreon bonuses for our heroes, and to my co-hosts, Jeremy, Aaron, Hunter, and Jacqueline for hosting this podcast with me. And until next time, there's really not much more we can say, but we want you to know you don't have to go through this alone. And thanks for listening.
Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our heroes for making this episode of the podcast possible. If you would like to be one of those heroes and get access to cool things like bloopers and early access to spoilers and more, then go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. And next time, try an aggressive bunny rabbit.